previously, you know, work done on the coast, done by non-Indigenous people. They're assigning cultural phases and technology types, either based off of their last names or the region they're in, um, and not of particular meaning to those, you know, descendant peoples and communities. So, we wanted to work with uh, the Hermed and the Heltzik Language Program Group uh, to identify appropriate terms for the three cultural phases identified at the site. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. Humans are a traveling sort of species. Many of our most ancient stories and myths involve odysseys and searches for promised lands. A lot of archaeologists' time is spent trying to understand how exactly different people got to where they are now, the routes they took, and when they got there. And so this week, we're talking about ancient migrations and how we know what we know about where we went and when. I can't believe I said that sentence correctly the first time. Uh, One of the ways that we learn about ancient migrations is actually through the tools that people have left behind. And that is why we are talking with Radu Jovica, an archaeologist. He is an expert in both stone tools and the ancient Silk Road, which is a lot more ancient than you probably think. Radu, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, Very well. uh, Yeah, uh, thank you very much for having me. So first, I wanted to kind of get an idea of place and time. You study the ancient Silk Road, where and when is this? So the Silk Road was originally a network of trade routes. Um, that's what it was defined that way um, for for the Middle Ages. Uh, what we are looking at is a pattern of movement that went um, that connected the Middle East with Siberia and with China during the what we call the Stone Age. So um, anywhere between the ancient Stone Age, the Paleolithic period, and the Neolithic period, basically, which is the uh, the more recent. So about, you know, somewhere between 120 and about 10,000 years ago. But it's still kind of from the same points to similar points. It's, it's on that same kind of geographic band. Right, exactly. It connects essentially Iran with China and southern Siberia, which is nowadays in Russia or Mongolia or someplace like this. And of course, um, 50,000 years ago, I imagine people were not trading a lot of silk along the Silk Road. What do we know about why people were traveling via this route? Like what was especially useful about it? So what what we know is that there were several different kinds of people. There were some archaic hominins called Denisovans that were found um, in Denisova cave in the Russian Altai. And there were Neanderthals, which were also found both in Uzbekistan, um, the Fergana Valley, and also in uh, also the, the Russian Altai. So we know that at both ends of this kind of corridor, there were various different kinds of people and we also know that around that time, around 50,000 years, 60,000 years, we don't know exactly when, some people also from Africa, which were our modern ancestors, um, the, the ancestors of modern humans, uh, also migrated and populated all of Asia and eventually from there went to the Pacific and to North America. So the, how come you know these three different uh, sort of ancient populations ended up in this um, mixing in this area. And um, our hypothesis was that they did it 
because they were essentially squeezed into a very small kind of um, corridor between um, a lot of the deserts that are present in Central Asia and the high mountains. There's a chain of mountains that runs from Uzbekistan all the way to Mongolia, and it's uh, made up of the Pamirs, the Tian Shan Mountains, then later the Jungar Alatau, and later the Altai. And these are very high mountains. They're up, you know, 4,000 meters and above. And usually on the the uh, northern or western side of these mountains, there are very dry kind of deserty sort of um, landscapes. So if you're kind of looking for a place in between the deserts and the mountains, um, that the space isn't actually as large as it looks on the map. So we call this the Inner Asian Mountain Corridor. Okay, so when we're talking about this corridor, it's not, and we talk about kind of this, this like around 50,000 years ago kind of mixing. This is not like people are not traveling purposely, really. Mm-hmm. They're are, like, are, they're not like going from one place to another. No. Like we are from Iran and we're going to China. Like <laughs> what would, what did kind of the travel across this area look like? Exactly. That's exactly the point. People are not doing it because of any kind of specific movements or even knowing that they're, that there's something on the other side. They're simply hunting animals and animals have specific migration patterns. And they're also taking refuge from places that are very dry, windy, very sandy, um, dusty, and so on, which would be the open, sort of the open step. And they're going into these sort of nice valleys with lush kind of greenery. Um, you know, it happens, for example, these these uh, Piedmonts, these, uh, so the foothills um, of these mountains are also known as the, the birthplace of a lot of the, um, of the stone fruit that we eat nowadays, right? Like prunus, like, uh, you know, apricots and apples and so on. And even today, when you go there, you see such wild um, apples and, and uh, plums and so on growing. So this very nice, rich sort of vegetation, there are lots of um, animals, deer and, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of mountain goats and all kinds of things that are tasty and that that um, you can eat there. And it's also, it's it's in the winter, it's less cold and in the summer, it's more humid. So it's kind of this sort of a Goldilocks zone in which people would have been attracted to go from one valley to another and so on. And then what we have also is that climate is shifting a lot. So the the uh, this we're t- talking about the last glacial cycle, which means the last um, transition from um, an interglacial. We're in an interglacial now, so it's a warm period. The last transition from a warm period to a cold period, and this last cold period, the last glacial, contains lots of um, oscillations, lots of cycles from warm to cold, from warm to cold to cold to cold to warm again, and so on. And this, these warm and cold uh, changes result in, in um, mountain glaciers sort of advancing. So when you're st- stuck in this kind of little corridor and you have glaciers, you know, um, essentially uh, covering various passes in the mountains, it kind of um, can create a certain pressure um, at one end or another of this corridor. People might be moving uh, one way or another. So there's dynamic kind of movement within the corridor based on climatic conditions. 
And I was wondering, you mentioned like the origins of stone fruits. And I, I admit, I actually completely forgot. Apples are from Pakistan. Um, <laughs> They're from Kazakhstan, apples. Kazakhstan. Um, yeah. So you've you've done a lot of field work out in there. Have you ever had like a really, really wild apple or plum or? Yeah, they, we, we yeah. eat them all the time. Um, and bears eat them, which is kind of uh, one of the issues that we have sometimes uh, with our campsites. Oh, but, uh, yeah. yeah at near one of uh, my cave sites where we're digging now in uh, Alpuspayeva Cave in Tianshan, National, um, in Tianshan Mountains in the Sairam Ugam uh, National Park, uh, we have a mountain sign that's completely full of wild plums and wild uh, apples. What do they taste? Uh, they're they're a bit sour, but uh, oh. but they have uh, uh, but they're very 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 flavorful. So they they have more more perfume, but they're smaller and sourer than. That's so than cool. Yeah. <laughs> and you uh, also mentioned that people would have been hunting and like animals had migration routes. Do we know what kind of animals kind of had migrations that ended up kind of along this particular band? So it's it's a little it's a little bit uh, um, misleading what I said earlier. Um, so, for example, the animal no named Saiga, it's an antelope, and it's kind of a uh, it's one of the few sort of Pleistocene animals, uh, so Ice Age animals that still exist in Kazakhstan. Um, it's it's it looks kind of like Alf, the 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 monster, the the kind of the alien. It has this kind of trunk. Uh, it, it's a very cute animal, um, and it was eaten a lot during Pleistocene. Th this animal, for instance, this um, saiga antelope, it's it it has actually it dashes across the steppe. So it can make really big movements um, even through the through sort of the drier parts. But the main thing is that in the winter, most of these animals they kind of go up and down the, the slopes. Like the, you know, it depends on the on how, how how much grass there is. And and the shepherds, for example, today they also know when it gets hot in the summer. They go up in the mountains, and they the, the there's uh, for the sheep there is you know fresh nice green grass, and in the they they come back down in the in the in the fall back to the to the lower elevations, but it's all it's all um, a question of elevation, and the animals basically go up and down um, the mountain. Um, so you've been doing a lot of work um, in caves in the area with stone tools in particular, and I was wondering what. What kind of fascinates you about stone tools? Like what kind of brought you to to studying stone tools specifically? Um, originally, I started working in stone tools because they're, I mean, they are what determines a site, essentially. If you have, you know, if you have bones, let's say in a site, um, not all archaeological sites have bones, right? Um, but all archaeological sites pretty much have to have some kind of artifacts. Otherwise, we can't establish human presence. So what really interested me in stone tools is that they're present in every single period of the Paleolithic. That's that's what um, they, you, you, you really get a representation of human behavior from every time period. Um, and originally, when I started working with stone tools, I was doing the kind of classical sort of, um, you know, typology, sort of like what do they look like, what's their size, what is their shape, and so on, and trying to put them back together because they, the stone tools are made by breaking a, a kind of a round sort of, you know, a, a bigger rock into smaller sort of sharp bits. 
And so you can put them back together and figure out how they made them. But with time, I became interested in what they were used for. And so that's kind of what I work on the most now. I will say I actually got to make a stone tool myself when I was taking an archaeology class. Um, and you think, oh, it's just it's just a rock. It can't be that, so- that, that incredibly sharp. But I actually put it in my backpack. And when I reached in later to get it, I cut myself. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, I really cut myself. It was quite sharp. Absolutely. I For my students, sometimes I shave a little bit of my arm with it just to, <gasps> to show people that you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you go about figuring out what different stone tools were used for and also like when they were used? Because you mentioned there's kind of three major groups. There's archaic humans, there's Denisovans, and there's also Neanderthals that were using this area. Like, how how do you know? What's the difference between like a Denisovan tool and an archaic human tool? So that's the that's the um, sort of play. That that's the direction in which a lot of people are going now is trying to identify a type of human based on the kinds of stone tools they make. I don't subscribe to this theory, um, to this to this approach. I don't think you can really do it. Um, and I don't think it makes sense that you could do it, right? Um, but so first, I'll just say a little bit about how you try to figure out how what they were used for. Um, in general, we take a forensic sort of approach. Uh, you take your stone tool and you see uh, in what way um, its sides, you know, the, the sort of um, edges were in some way damaged. And based on that, you try to figure out um, uh, whether or not it's time it's it's uh, worth it to uh, examine under the microscope. The idea is that when a stone tool is used to cut something or scrape it or bo- make a hole somewhere with it, that the material that is being worked will leave some sort of uh, traces by rubbing with, um, on the edges of the stone tool. And if you do it long enough, those traces will become, reg- you know, they will be like, they will have a certain um, kind of uh, signature. And this is called uh, use wear analysis or uh, traceology. And um, when you take a look at the entire tool, the, the, um, the morphology, like the the shape of it, and then you look at the edges and you see how they are, you know, how they've been um, dulled, or whether there are some kind of linear traces. For example, if there are some kind of um, scratches that run parallel to the edge, then you can deduce that they might have been used to that they might come from a cutting sort of motion, back and forth, sort of sawing kind of motion. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing we do a lot of experiments in the lab to create these kinds of traces and create a kind of reference collection and then we look at what's in the archaeological record and compare it to the to the traces that we get from the lab and when they match we sort of assume that's the same processes that led to uh, creating both types of traces. So I was wondering actually is there any potential to recover kind of say genetic material traces um like if you were using a stone tool to for example work wood or ivory um or bone you might end up with some dna from that on the tool is that it does it just is it just completely gone by the time you get to it or is there any movement to try and kind of 
find out if that eDNA is still there. So uh, it's funny that you ask. Um, so uh, first of all, last week there was a paper published in Nature, I think, uh, um, on the, this exact thing that was done uh, with a bone pendant. So it was the DNA of a woman that wore um, a bone pendant uh, around her neck. Um, and so they were able to extract it without destroying the piece. So that's really impressive. I mean, it's a, it's a deer piece of deer that was worn around the neck of a person and they were able to extract DNA from that. Uh, you can't do it with stone tools. They're not porous enough. Um, there's been some one person that's attempted this. Um, um, in, 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 it's April uh, Noel from the University of Victoria in Vancouver. And she's worked with some stone tools from the, the Iraq from the marshes of Iraq, and these are Neanderthal stone tools. And she's do, looked not at DNA, but at types of hemoglobin that are um, the protein and proteins on, like blood proteins, essentially on the stone tools. And they've published a, a lot of this stuff, but um, no one else has really replicated it. So I, I don't really know if um, if it's correct but uh, she she published a bunch of papers where um they're claiming that you know there was duck killed here elephant there and so on and so forth so um it's it's not very commonly done but you can um and it can it it's stuff like that has been done and i would like to go back because you noted that you know there is this theory that you could potentially tell differences in stone tools like used by neanderthals versus by archaic humans why do some people think that you could tell and why do you not accept that theory? Right. So I think um, I think that the reason the theory goes like this is that there are certain what is called mental templates. They're kind of like instructions. You think of them as, as instructions, uh, like an Ikea set of instructions, you know. And the idea is that you know, uh, to make a, a knife or to make a something that this is cultural knowledge and um, that, you know, if different cultures make knives different ways, which we know to be sometimes true, um, then certainly different species or different subspecies would be, would most certainly be making them differently. Um, but there's not really any evidence that this needs to be true, right? Like that, that this is just has to be true. Um, originally, for instance, people were pointing to the idea of, um, of uh, chopsticks. So the idea is that Chinese chopsticks are long and round and they're made of wood and Korean chopsticks are kind of, uh, I think, um, I think they're a bit square and they're metal metal and Japanese chopsticks are shorter and they're also made of wood. You know, there's different kinds of uh, chopsticks. And so the idea is, look, if you can tell Japanese, Chinese and Koreans chopsticks from each other, then surely you would be able to tell stone tools made by Neanderthals from stone tools made by modern humans. But time and again, we keep finding, you know, some some group that makes stone tools exactly like the other group, for example, in the Middle East. We have uh, Neanderthals, uh, so, sorry, we have modern humans making the same kinds of tone tools as Neanderthals. And uh, it's, you know, whereas when we are in China, we have the same stone tools that were used to argue for modern humans in the Middle East 
being used to argue that it's an you know that it's Neanderthals that are coming into into China. So I, I just think that you know it's impossible to stay consistent with this. These are very simple stone tools, and I think that the techniques for making them were extremely widespread. They were part of the know-how of um, every group of humans, and that unless you're able to really reconstruct cultural uh you know culturally complex ways of using stone tools that might incorporate you know for instance the way that they're making handles for them or the kinds of glue that they're using to put them together or a specific way of holding them or something like this those that might get that might get us to something but i think just like looking at the stone tool and saying this one is going to be this these stone tools are made by neanderthals these ones are made by uh, modern humans it's i don't think it's going to work um, so I also wanted to ask, some stone tools can be very controversial. So for example, I know there are some uh, lithics that have been found in the Americas that would push back the date of human occupation like way early. And a lot of people have been like, those aren't stone tools. Those are just lucky rocks. Um, and I was wondering, how do you tell the difference between a stone tool and a lucky rock? <laughs> Right. Um, that's a very good question. And it's very um, uh, it's it's very relevant to the earliest time periods when most of the early stone tools look like lucky rocks. And it's just because they've been battered around and they're uh, made out of somewhat unfortunate raw materials that are not as easy to recognize. But generally, we consider that a, a stone tool is really a stone tool um, when it has some obvious signs of intentional manufacture. For example, if it has a what is called a bulb of percussion, that means it's a when when a stone tool breaks through, like you, you take a you take a, you know one rock and hit it against another one. The one that breaks off usually will have a kind of convex sort of a rounded side that we call the ventral side, um, and that will basically tell you that a certain it's not just kind of broken because of let's say um differences in temperature which might sometimes make a you know make a rock explode um but rather that it was hit by another rock now it helps a lot if 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 you have that and that makes a flake and then it helps a lot if there are other removals from it so like you know it's if it's been hit again and it has several of such removals then then this usually helps uh, to identify it as a as an intentionally made uh piece now there are some sites especially there there are a couple in the americas there's one in brazil um that where for instance there's it, it it's it's been argued that it's a very old site but actually there are rocks be falling from a cliff so when they fall from the cliff, they fall from very far. And when they hit, they display exactly the kind of features that I just talked about. So now you, there you have to take it in context, you know, well, okay. I mean, do, then that's no longer enough, right? Then we want something else. We might want some retouch, which is like a resharpening, uh, signs of resharpening. We might want maybe some bones associated with them and so on. So, um, and the same thing is, you know, I, I haven't examined the the, the tools from um, the the Ceruti Mastodon site, which I think is the one you're talking about. I don't I don't really um, specialize in North America, but 
yeah, I mean, there people are making the argument that perhaps it was some uh, diggers or something like that that were uh, breaking the stones in such a way that could be interpreted that they would have been, um, that looks like intentional breakage. It's really wild, actually, when you look at some of these, like the stones falling from cliffs, and you realize just how lucky rocks can get. Exactly. Rock can, rocks can get very lucky. <laughs> exactly. I mean, for instance, I was visit. I was walking around the, uh, the Chateau de Vincennes the other day, uh, you know, and the gravel, I was just looking at my feet, as I always do, and I found, a, I mean, I found a piece of flint that, you know, if I'd found it in the right context, I would have said it's a real stone tool. But I know that it comes from a gravel. They, you know, the French, you know, when they built this castle, they brought gravel from somewhere, and they, these things knocked against each other for a long time, and they created flakes. So um, I'm just going to assume it's not a real stone tool. My my PhD advisor had uh, what is something something that I really like. Um, it's called the Miocene rule. Um, the Miocene is this old period, you know, uh, when there were no humans around and um he said look you need to have the same principles uh that if you find a stone tool and you're willing to say that this is a real stone tool even if i told you it's from the miocene then you're allowed to make that argument but you cannot just say for instance that something because it's kind of young and it looks ugly but you see, there were humans then, you know, so it's not a problem. We'll accept it, right? He he said, you have to have the same standard as if you were claiming it was from the Miocene. So I that means be very, very skeptical. And you actually have, you mentioned you've been examining kind of wear patterns in stone tools, and you actually create kind of a library of like stone tool types and you test them you like test the wear patterns and i was wondering if you could describe how you test stone tools against different surfaces because what comes to mind of course is a bunch of dudes um you know standing sitting out there just like smashing rocks together <laughs> and that's not what you do no not at all um we so a lot of people have done that so there's there there are many 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 collections around the world and one of the things that uh that's a big problem is that different analysts all make their own collection and they keep it there they use it for themselves and no one ever shares this information so what we decided to do was to actually um uh to use robots uh to kind of uh just process as many stone tools as possible um, and we teamed up with a, with a, with a few engineers. Um, at the beginning, it was um, Jonas Buchli from the from um, ETH Zurich, and now uh, we're working with uh, people from uh, NYU um, Tandem School of Engineering, and um, uh, like Ludovic Rigetti and uh, um, Rakesh Pehera and so on, many colleagues. Uh, we are we are essentially having um, robots perform the same tasks. We can tell the robots um, uh, to use the same forces that we already measured. First, we measure these things on humans. We we put sensors on people as they carry out, like the dudes that you said. You know, the dudes are cutting something. Okay, well, but now the dudes are instrumented. They have um, sensors on them, and then we know with what force and what speed and what angle and so on. And then we take all of those parameters and give them to a, an industrial robot. And so then we can just let the robot work on 
on cert- several different tools. So, you know, somebody can stay there and switch the tools out, put them in a in a ultrasonic bath and clean them and so on. And that way we can just process a lot more um, tools so that we can have a variety of um, of uh, um, objects for this reference library of ours. And the idea is also that this way we're able to actually isolate different parameters. So the idea is to say, okay, well, what's the um, what's the influence of force? What's the influence of speed? What's the influence of temperature? What's the influence of um, you know lubricants like water or grease? What's the influence of uh, the hardness of specific uh, of specific worked in, um, materials? And we've come up with some very counterintuitive results. You know, like one of which is that actually the softer materials abrade stone more than the hard ones. So I wanted to kind of follow up on this a little bit because, you know, you're basically, you had a bunch of dudes. Why is it always dudes smashing rocks together? Nobody knows. Anyway. Um, so you have a bunch of dudes and you measured this. Um, and we have ladies smashing rocks too. Sorry. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> so I was wondering, is there potential though, if you're giving all of these measurements to the robot and having the robot replicate this, is there a potential that you're replicating mistakes or measurements that would not necessarily be useful or correct? So this is a great question. And and the reason why we're not worried about that is the following. Um, and, and this is one of the great uh, uh, things to, to be careful when, when making experimental, experimental designs. The idea is what you're looking at when you look on the, under the microscope is a, you know, 100 micron by 100 microns, you know, uh, view, like that's your window. So what you care about is what created something that happens on a 100 by 100 micron scale. And so what does it matter if the person who makes it is using, um, I don't know what kind of gesture or what kind of clothes they're wearing or, you know, the like, you know, uh, whether it's a dude or a dudette or, you know, anything like that, right? So what really matters is what happens at the interstice, like at the interface between the two um, the two um, uh, in materials. So that's what we are really interested in. And so it, in the end, actually, um, a robotic sort of um, uh, experiments are fine for that particular purpose. Now, there are different things that there are different measurements at different scales for which we might want to go back to doing um, monitored, you know, human experiments, or for which we might want to um, program the robots differently. But the robots we're using are sophisticated um, industrial robots. They have, you know, six degrees of freedom on their arms. They can be programmed to have, a, they, they can pick their, um, their error from whatever specified distribution you like. I mean, they can they can copy very complex movements and they can introduce error in the movement. They can, they, we, we can pretty much simulate anything. So I wanted to, we've kind of zoomed into like the hundred micron <laughs> level. I wanted right. to kind of zoom out here because you're trying to replicate or create a library of stone tool surfaces that replicate those that you have found. Um, and I was wondering how frequent are these stone tools on the landscape? Like when you're looking 
at kind of this ancient corridor, which, you know, we talked about the time period that this is in. I mean, it's tens of thousands of years. It's a very long time. Um, you know, how, how frequent are these stone tools? Is the whole, is the ground just littered with them or are there actually relatively few? So it's a fantastic question because actually Kazakhstan and where we work is, is a mix, is a, is a mix of, of both of those things. So it's a mix of most of the, 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 most of the step and, and these deserts are filled with enormous surfaces where there are millions of stone tools on the ground. You would just see them everywhere. Um, and then is, but there's no stratigraphy. There is these, um, the wind is always blowing. And so there's no chance for sediment to, to, to kind of accumulate there, which means you can't, you can see the stone tools, but you don't have any uh, chronological control. Now we are working with, uh, with a colleague in, in uh, Austria to try to date directly um, these stone tools. But so far we're still in the very uh, infancy of this project, but, Majority of the majority of the sites that we're we're looking for are actually in the opposite uh, spectrum. So as you get closer to the mountains, you have what is called loess, which is this very thin, very like very fine dust. Um, you have it in the U.S. too, like in Wisconsin and places like this, Minnesota and so on, um, nearby where the glaciers used to be, and you can actually see it's it's just like these big cliffs of dust. Um, and this loess, um, it's called, it, it, it can accumulate up to hundreds of meters and it, it really fills up, uh, landscapes. And sometimes your stone tools that are really what you're looking for could be under eight, 10, 12, 20, 30, 50, a hundred meters of loess. Um, and so you have to employ some very you know, uh, you have to be lucky or you have to really target um, various, you know, you have to do a lot of field walking. Um, you have to tr- try to target places that have an abrupt topography where maybe a river is cutting through something like that and maybe exposes some some stone tools. Or you go into caves and and that's what we've tried to do. We've tried to do all of those things at the same time to get these things in stratigraphy because once they're they're buried. You can date them. You know, you can you can figure out how old they are, and um, therefore to what time period this occupation actually dates. And what you know, you mentioned that yeah, sometimes you have just stone tools scattered all over the ground. I part of me loves that ancient humans left just as much trash as modern ones in their way. Um, and I was wondering, what do the tools that you found? kind of tell you about how and where people were traveling across this area? Well, one of the one of the sort of uh, most interesting things that we see is that um, in the so we we kind of use the the open so this this sort of surface record to kind of understand better understand um, what people did on a like on a lateral sort of horizontal scale, right? Um, and one of my PhD students, Emily Coco, she's she's done her PhD and she's done her PhD on these surface collections, um, and especially with respect to the idea of uh, recycling. So how often are people actually coming back to the same place and reusing the same stone tools? And um, and you know the the idea is that is that when, that uh, hunter gatherers um, have a certain uh, understanding of the landscape 
and they they sort of come back to some spots. But this to re- to really understand that you have to kind of both understand both both time time uh, passing and the the horizontal uh, thing. So we're trying to piece it together. It's taking a long time. We have we have some records. We have very few records um, from these uh, from these stratified sites where we can sort of say, okay, they came back here twenty thousand years ago. 40,000 years ago, but not in between. And then we have the the place where we can say, yeah, they were next to the rivers. They were uh, coming back to this particular spot, even though let's say here, there was not uh, necessarily more stone to be had. So they must've come for something else. They must've maybe come for um, processing an animal. But if there there are no bones, then we can't, can't, we're not sure about that. So it's it's each and every type of record gives you some different kind of information. If you're lucky, you can have it all at the same time. You know, you can have the bones with the stones, with the dating and everything else at the same time. So those are those are, you know, if if every site was like that, then um we would um, have a lot more information. But instead we have these different kinds of records and we're trying to put them all together. Well, Radu, thank you so much for being here and talking rocks and silk roads with us. Okay, great. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about a different road, a road into the Americas, one that's been documented by indigenous peoples over thousands of years. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Bethany Brookshire, and now we're going to talk about another much less ancient migration. This one is one that took place in what is now British Columbia, when First Nations people began living there. I'm here with Gehekasu Yamalas, whose English name is Elroy White, a potlatch historian and archaeologist and member of the Hesha, and Alicia Govro, an anthropologist at the University of Victoria. Thank you both for being here with me. Thanks, Bethany. So, um, so first, Elroy, I wanted to ask you, um, your nation has been collaborating with archaeologists on projects like this for a while, and you yourself are an archaeologist. I was wondering, how does the nation go about forming these collaborations with researchers? What does that look like? Uh, Well, uh, today, the collaborations are made possible through our HERMD office. It's called the Healthy Integrated Resource Management Department. So they're staffed by HCL people and who are who have their degrees and their uh, professional expertise in cultural natural resource management. And often we're always in a, a they are kept informed of any research that's going to take place in the territory, either if it's through cultural resource management, which is in academia and or academia. So it's a huge network uh, within just this one little office. And so they initiate the, the collaboration. But lately, though, with the academics or Hifjok academics, they make it known to universities that uh, collaboration is the best. And so there's direct communication right off the bat. And now with social media, it's almost instantaneous. You just can't have it with uh, any, uh, can't forego have, uh, collaborating with our nation anymore. It, it, everything's so open now, everything's so accessible. As soon as someone finds out there's someone in the territory working, the word gets to the Herm office and the joint leadership, which consists of 
Minuyuk's council, which are ladies of high rank and the elected council. And when you're looking to collaborate with a group that wants to do science, um, how do you know if the group is going to have equity in mind when working with you? Like, do you ever end up, you know, changing the research questions that get asked or the different angles of research? Well, the first I, uh, first thing that would come up would be, is there any benefit to the H job? And in this case with Le- uh, Alicia, the benefit's directly hers. But uh, through our open communication, we have to, we have to uh, come into an understanding of at some point, her research that has to benefit the history. Um, and in this case, with the, we combine the oral history with the or- archaeological record. And so now I wanted to ask Alicia, how did you end up wanting to look at the questions that you looked at for work on uh, what is now called Trickett Island? Yeah, so I started working with uh, Dr. Duncan McLaren in Helsic Territory um, in, gosh, when was that? 2012, 2013, while I was still doing my master's degree. Now, I was also, I did my master's work in collaboration with Helsic Nation as well. Uh, It was on the topic of the Pacific Herring Management. And so through work with Duncan, I started working at Trickett, and that's where we realized it might be a good opportunity to be my PhD research topic. And then we went through the Hermed office to set up a researcher registration agreement. Um, And since then, it's kind of history. (laughs) We meet fairly regularly um, and everything is uh, vetted through through their office. And did um, that process change the questions you asked or the way you decided to go about looking at evidence? Our collaboration has definitely, um, you know, guided my approach through my dissertation. It's definitely evolved from my initial thinking. I'm, you know, I'm in my seventh year now after, you know, completing my degree through, through uh, COVID and everything. Um, when I initially set out, I had, you know, three, three kind of topics in mind, but since then, they've been reframed to, as Elroy has identified, try to, you know, produce something that would be of, of value and interest to the community members. And so, you know, we wrote quite a technical paper together, uh, but we also collaborated in, to prepare a newsletter that would be a bit more accessible for folks, um, you know, more, less wordy, less technical. And in this case, you were working specifically on the historical use of this island. Um, And Elroy, I was wondering if you could talk me through the oral history um, of this area, because you do have a substantial oral history around this particular island, right? Uh, Not directly to this island, to the area of uh, where the island is situated. And so there's a number of stories that are not as direct, directly associated with it. And we have to be careful when we're sharing oral history, just like writing a thesis or a, a dissertation, you have to cite your sources. And so we have to be very careful in even citing our sources and our, our stories. And in this case, Trickett is in the Nulawi territory, and that's uh, meaning the eldest people of the world. 
and it's in the outer islands of the Haystow territory. So, but there is a story around it, I understand, um, that states that the area was free of ice. Is that right? Yeah, we have several stories and our people are interrelated. So each tribe of our nations, there's five tribes. We all have shared heritage of some way through our chiefly lineages. And it's through a process called which means your strength or right. And this is began in antiquity. And to change that over time has to be has to go through these chiefs. And in this case, <clears throat> where Trickett is located in the Nulawit tribe, uh, the story there's a a Nuyam, I guess, which has been shared really short, is that uh, at one time there's nothing but a narrow strip of land surrounded by ice and water, which in this case references the the the, the glacier retreat. And Alicia, what did archaeology kind of already know about this area? Because there there was some kind of suspicion that there was already human presence in this particular area. Yeah, so in, you know, my mentors had done some work to refine the sea level curve in the area. And as I said, I joined the Halap team. Uh, sorry, so that, that is the Hakai Ancient Landscapes Archaeology Project team. And so they'd been working throughout the broader regions of Heltzik territory uh, in collaboration with Hermd and, and Elroy as well. And so EKTB9, the archaeological site on Trickett Island, was first recorded in 2009 during a survey for, I believe it was BC Parks, and it was identified as a site to revisit for the Halap program uh, in 2011 because of its outer, outer coastal positioning, uh, because of its association with these oral histories, and because of the relatively stable sea level known in the area. So we went to the site the team went to the site in 2012. Elroy, I believe you were there that year. And then uh, we didn't go back to the site again until 2015 when we uh, continued with excavation at the site. So there was a, you know, a sense of, of presence and Halsic Nation were always aware that this was an important area in their territory um, due to their oral histories and uh, traditional knowledge. But it's was really through some additional testing and survey that they were, you know, we've been able to confirm that early uh, human occupation and repeated presence on the island. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about the surveys, um, because in traditional archaeology, there's like digging of trenches and taking of cores and <laughs> things like that. And I was wondering, how did collaboration um, with um, Helsic people change the methods or techniques that were used in archaeology or were they changed at all? Oh, there was definitely guidance provided and, um, you know, a lot of communication as we um, encountered some more sensitive materials in the excavation unit. Um, Elroy was present uh, for the initial identification and recording of the site, and that was just kind of done through pedestrian survey, identifying uh, exposures, so areas along the banks where, you know, shelmidon deposits were eroding and areas where shelmidon had been adhered to the bottom of root poles, so on large trees that had been blown over in storms at the site. After that, uh, the team went in and conducted some 
core tests and auger tests. And then we had that excavation unit put in. The unit was then expanded to to a trench um, during subsequent field seasons. But we did encounter um, ancestral remains in the some of the basal deposits at the site. And following, we followed the Hermed protocol. So work stopped immediately. Um, and fortunately, very fortunately, there were community members present on site. So we were also able to be guided by them directly because it is quite remote there. There's no Wi-Fi or cell service or anything. So we were able to have guidance on uh, the appropriate kind of steps to take there to ensure, you know, the safety of, of uh, everyone on site and also uh, just the respect for, for the ancestors as well. Um, and you mentioned there are shell middens that are um, kind of eroding and shell middens, of course, are basically trash heaps <laughs> from shells of delicious food that has become just shells. Um, and I was wondering what else uh, what other artifacts did did you find? You know, things that were not necessarily human remains, but you know, tools, yeah, stuff like I th- that. I think I mean referring to them as trash heaps is it's a bit of a misconception. I know the the term midden itself implies that, but these were not. You know, they they don't represent just thoughtless discard. They were in many instances on this site. Uh, it is evidence that they were materials were intentionally placed in these areas. Um, through deliberate labor and investment, because some portions of the site are, are quite uh, rocky and irregular in these areas were filled in. These shellmen deposits um, also some have preserved shell, some do not. Uh, so that's where we see, you know, periosticum, so the fine membrane on the shell uh, that gets preserved, but then the uh, calcium carbonate of the shell breaks down. So within these shellmen deposits, um, I, there's so, a wealth of information can be retrieved. Uh, you know, we've recovered numerous lithics. So these are stone tools made of various materials, including materials of local origin and imported. So we recovered graphite, uh, which is would have been used as a pigment stone, and that would have been imported to the site. There's a lump vein near Bellacula as a potential source for that. Uh, There was also obsidian, including obsidian microblades recovered from within the Shellman deposits. These were traced to Anaheim Peak, um, and Dr. Rudy Reimer did that work out of Simon Fraser University, so with XRF. Uh, In addition to to those, there's, of course, an abundance of faunal remains, which help us reconstruct changes in environment, um, subsistence, and mobility through time. Uh, you can also, you know, extract sediment samples or process your samples to, you know, un- uncover um, pollen spores and other organics that may be preserved in these deposits. Uh, what was pretty cool about about this site in particular are the wet site deposits as the site was established kind of along the periphery of of a former bog. Um, Within the peat, there were over 800 perishable wooden artifacts. Um, These included, you know, carved wooden by points. So these are kind of like spear points um, that would have been attached to longer implements for for spearing or for harvesting other resources in the intertidal areas. There were bent wood fish hooks. There was an atlatl throwing board. Um, so this is to facilitate, you know, the the harvesting of marine species at a distance. 
um, kind of, you know, with, with quite a lot of precision as well. And then there are, of course, a couple of objects that we've been unable to, to uh, assign a specific function, um, but, uh, you know, someone may get there eventually with them. Okay, can we go back to the middens? Because I didn't actually know that. Um, so oh, when you okay. say, no, this, this is fascinating. When you okay. say that middens are intentional, were you saying they are, are used for, for building or? Yes. Yeah. Ah. So thank you. So, so, you know, initially when you have small groups of folks on the land, they may be discarding in areas, um, you know, likely away from where they're immediately occupying uh, due to potential scavenger presence and that sort of thing on Trickett Island. What's really cool is there are no big predators because it's, it's so remote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, deer and wolves could could swim out there, but yeah, with with regards to the to the extensive deposits on the site, like the the surface area is over seventeen thousand square meters. It extends to six meters below surface at the northern extent of the site, and that is all from shell and fire altered rock that has been laid down in areas that were kind of lumpy or sloped, and it enabled people to level it out and create a really nice drain drain you know well draining surface um, for them to occupy potentially build longhouses on um, and there's actually a house platform still evident on the landscape today um, so that's kind of the remnant of where a large house would have been for multiple multiple generations to to occupy and there were likely a, several of these um, structures on the island at one time. Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> Maybe Elroy could speak to that a bit more too. If I missed anything, Elroy, <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, Elroy, um, I wanted to ask actually um, if you had anything to add, especially about the fish traps, because I believe there were fish traps. Yeah. Uh, one thing about the Nulawi territory is that um, the Haysha people have always been interested in it archaeologically. It's just that we didn't have the means to, or the funds or the expertise to conduct such an enormous type of project. And to go back to your collaboration pro- uh, question, our Hermed office just happened to start around the same time the, that um, a, a multimillionaire bought Hackeye Beach Institute. He bought this property and turned it into a research training educational facility. And his lodge, the lodge now, was uh, located right in front of a shell midden or a shell layers, deposit of shell layers. And we had dispute, or the Herman office and the joint leadership had dispute over the previous archaeological excava- uh, work done. So he had approached the nation, uh, the Herman office, and he followed the due diligence of the provincial archaeology branch, and he invited uh, the Helsuk to be direct collaborators on his on the the resurvey of that shell, those shell layers in front of his the lodge. And so from there, it led to more research and, and an academic projects and so on. And so this collaboration was just like a continuum, just mm-hmm. continued right from 2010. And then mm-hmm. and applied to Alicia. Oh, um, so I did want to ask, um, working together, 
you all looked at the evidence of cores and stone tools and wooden artifacts, and you ended up putting them into three historical stages. And Elroy, you were one of the archaeologists who helped you assign those particular stages. Can you kind of walk us through what those three historical stages are? Actually, that was done by William and Rory. Rory Housty, his name is Gooey, and William is Dukwaesala. We all have our potlatch names as well. And they actually took care of that part of the, the, the collaboration. So maybe Alicia can speak on it, and then I can probably elaborate upon it. Okay. Hey, yeah. So... Um- uh, so previously, you know, work done on the coast, done by non-Indigenous people, they're assigning cultural phases and technology types, either based off of their last names or the region they're in, um, and not of particular meaning to those, you know, descendant peoples and communities. So we wanted to work with uh, the Hermed and the Heltzik Language program group uh, to identify appropriate terms for the three cultural phases identified at the site. Um, and so the first one is is like the earliest period of occupation is the Galakala phase. And this is when this means a time when people arrive on the beach. And so this is from about 14,000 to 8,000 uh, years ago. And then the middle period is the Zisipot phase, which is layers of shell. And this is from about 8,000 to 5,500 years ago. And then the the latest phase is the Denyas, which is the cedar phase. And so that's, you know, the mid to late Holocene, about 5,500 years ago to about 450 years ago. Um, but of course, Helsing Nation have continued to occupy and and uh, and visit the island since that time, um, you know, and it's still visited today. Uh, I think I forgot to mention that the Zisabot phase means layers of shell. So that's where we start to see these uh, preserved accumulations of shell and other uh, artifacts and, and natural deposits um, beginning to accumulate there at the northern extent of the site. Those phases and Hechja are really empowering to the First Nation people, to our people. It's very empowering because you heard Alicia saying that it was named after people, after places where they were, like Cathedral Phase or Clovis people or something. All, and all of a sudden now we have this one time, one research here where they actually use, of course, Hechja names for these time, same time frames, they're they're just not named after people. They're named after the Helsic word of, for those what's been uncovered. Do these three stages correspond with particular oral histories of the area, or are they primarily archaeological? Well, they're not meant to be. Um, they don't, you know, they don't capture in a fulsome way all of the information and, and knowledge for those specific periods, but they relate to, in some way, kind of the the most substantive finding um, from our work. My understanding is that they are not directly related to a specific oral history, but these these words would have li- are likely used um, in various oral histories, as uh, Galgala is, you know 
means arrive on the beach. Zizabot means literally layers of shell. Um, and Denyas means literally, quite literally, cedar. <laughs> so. Um, and Elroy, I was wondering, um, do are are there histories that kind of cover how people arrived to this area um, that would kind of correspond in time? Yes. Uh, to be first means gala. So galaha means to be the first served or the first chiefs. And if you, your name begins with gala, that means you're first. So in this case, for that first phase, uh, when they arrive to arrive on the beach, it really means to be first on the beach. And <clears throat> so that's a very high ranking, very important name. And, and, and but the other names, the other t- phases there are literally just correspond with the archaeological time frame of, of the sequence of the shell layers and the arrival of the Danyas, the cedar. But in the Nulawit tribe, which is just a sub-tribe of the Uyali tribe, which means the outer islands, are people from the outer islands, there was a, a, two supernatural figures. One was Yagis. And, and the killer whale. And they arrived at this place at the same time, around the same time, and Yagis asked the killer whale, the Halkhenu, who arrived here first? Who was here first? Who was Gala? And the killer whale said, I was here before place names. And so Yagis said, then you're going to be the eldest of this place, and your, the, your ancestors, your descendants, will derive from you, your strength, your shlachway. And the killer whale then transformed into a uh, face, transformed into human face, and it was still able to uh, perf- uh, swim and act like the killer whale, but it had a human face. And there's uh, in my family, one of our tombstones of our family members, there's a killer whale with two killer whales, and each one has a human face meeting each other. So that shows the continuity from contact our time, my time, historic time, way back to that that first story of the Nulawit. Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> um, and I also wanted to ask um, both of you, whichever wants to talk about this, there was also evidence for historical tsunamis um, that ended up kind of appearing in the archaeological record. And I was wondering, what does that look like? You know, is there like a layer? I'm thinking you know, when you think about like the KT extinction, when dinosaurs were, you know, unalived, um, there's usually an iridium layer that's very visible. And I was wondering, is there a tsunami layer? Like, is that, is that a visible layer that you were able to see? Yeah, that was, um, that, that particular layer was, you know, picked up on by, we had a delegation of Japanese archaeologists join us and uh, just fascinating how, the, the similarities between archaeological sites in Japan and, and on the northwest coast as well in terms of Shelmadin formation and these other types of, of uh, signatures from from various uh, natural events. So, you know, they first pointed out, hey, that kind of looks like a tsunami event. And we, we had noticed this very distinct sand layer as well, kind of higher up wedged between the peat. And I believe it was encountered in 2012 when Alroy was out there too, but it was very, very small because it kind of tapers... Um, 
inland, right? Because which makes sense. So it was a bit thinner and a bit thicker at uh, at the northern extent. But it, you know, it wasn't until we did uh, sedimentological analysis to to confirm the nature of of that sediment. So it was water rounded, fine sand class, and they were you know consistent size class, and there were also you know, it was there were relatively abundant marine diatoms and spicules sandwiched in there too. Uh, I, you know, representing it being a, a marine deposit and not kind of a, uh, you know, a freshwater environment. Yeah, this came from the sea. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And there has been, you know, a lot of uh, tsunami work uh, on the coast, just not specifically on Trichet Island. So we were able to look at some of that data. Um, and then there was that big earthquake off of Haida Gwaii that happened a while ago and, and you know, waves ended up, they were registered in, in Bella Bella. I think they were like 20 or 30 centimeters. Um, so it can travel quite, quite far. It seems most likely that it was kind of a localized um, kind of earthquake, underwater earthquake that would have generated the, uh, the big wave. And I was wondering what do, you know, you found, um, working together, you found archaeological evidence that indicates that, you know, humans were present on these islands um, up to about 14,000 years ago. And um, this kind of jives with some other recent findings. So, for example, there are some footprints um, relatively nearby that are around 13,000 years old. Um, And I was wondering what do these findings mean for both of you? Um, What do the findings mean in terms of how people came to the Americas and what do they mean to your nation, Elroy? The one thing that our our nation appreciated about is that this archaeological work, although it was done through academia uh, sources, uh, this, this information was still being communicated directly back to Herm. So there was a, a, a measure of respect in the past that wasn't, that wasn't even available. And uh, then the next thing you know, it would be write-ups and publications and so on and books and without any direct consultation with the Haystruck people. You know, times have changed for the better. And during this time when we're at the Hackey Beach Institute, when I was there with Alicia and them, I was always I asked, what are the protocols? What are the guidelines? And I always directed them back to her. And, you know, I'm not a direct employee of the Hermed office, so I couldn't answer for them. You know, I didn't take that opportunity to grandstand and say, well, this is what you should do. I always felt it was important for Herm to be the, to be the, the decision maker in this process. But, and, you know, our people have always been interested in archaeologists. We just didn't have the means. And here was the opportunity. So we didn't try to take advantage of the archaeology because I'm an archaeologist too. I understand everything that Alicia talks about because uh, that, that's of my interest. But the people who, they re- who receive this information do not. And so I became uh, in between, a liaison between the two. So if Alicia said something, then I can, trans- I can say it back to the Hermed office or our leader or chief. But that to be to answer uh, short story here is that uh, they it was confirmation of our long time history over time and space 
or in a ge geographical area that there's no population replacement. And that is something that they've been always aware of by other researchers. In this case, it showed that during these stable sea levels that our people had lived only in this one spot. You have to remember, it's only one village. There's so many other villages within the area that benefited from a long-term occupation as well. Thanks, Elroy. And from a like a you know the the Arche perspective too, for for quite a long time, folks thought that the outer coastal islands weren't you know fully occupied with developed you know you know maritime specialization until about four thousand five hundred years ago. So you know the work done on Calvert Island, um, identifying those those very early footprints impressed in the clays, um, the work done at Nam, well Namu is more terrestrial, but also identifying you know an early occupation back to at least uh, I believe it's eleven thousand years, and now on Trickett Island with fourteen thousand years is adding additional evidence um, for uh, you know our understanding that folks were not only capable of of arriving in these areas that you know we may think of today as peripheral or remote but they're also capable of of really thriving and and making the most out of you know their very resource rich environments there are other sites on the north coast to the north of Trickett islands um, that also you know show this kind of evidence of specialized marine adaptation as well uh, so sites on Dundas Islands and uh, sites on Haida Gwaii now on Haida Gwaii there are they, you know much shorter uh, periods of occupation. So at sites like Kilgigwai um, and the Richardson Island site, because of the changing sea level, quite quite dramatic effects over there. Um, whereas on Dundas Island and then in the areas around Trigget, as, as Elroy mentioned, there's there's so many village sites. So, I mean, it's, it is possible that there are, you know, other sites of similar antiquity in the immediate area within the Heltzik territory. And Elroy, I wanted to ask, um, you know, as an archaeologist, do you have other areas or, you know, things or ideas that you want to see collaboration on in the future? Yeah, when I was, <clears throat> we were at Hakai, there's a number of Haystock people and Wikino people, other nation group, and we'd sing songs while we're at, uh, with the academics and, and the staff. And we continued this on site. It was a reminder whose territory these academics were on and the owner of the Hakai Beach. You know, we were the actual stewards of this territory. And, and as each artifact was found and each shell layer was dated and each uh, analysis interpretation was provided, it just made us as history feel even proud of what that our antiquity is getting older and older. And, but one thing though, is that north of Alabella in the inner waterways and inlets, we have, we don't have, there's no shell midden really like the volumes of shell layers in the outer islands. It's the reverse, to be honest. We would have shell layers would actually be at the bottom, not the top. And the black greasy midden would be on the top instead of the bottom is the reverse. So collaboration would be uh, dating and ex uh, excavating and dating these sites that are north of Bella Bella where our winter potlatches took place. 
Well, Alicia and Elroy, thank you so much for being here with us and for showing us what responsible collaboration looks like. Thanks, Bethany. Uh, if, if you'd like to learn more about Gehikasu Yemajalas, Elroy White, and Alicia Govro, we've got links to available for them on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. And while you're there, if you haven't subscribed, please do think about it. You could have so many more episodes in your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and leave us kind reviews on Apple Podcasts. And if you're up for it, we have a Patreon page where you can support the producers and editors that make this show happen. They're worth every cent, honestly. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>